Well, you coming? Where? Why, to the North Pole, of course. This is the Polar Express. Hello, cassettes, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Black Case Diaries. Hey! Hello! We're three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV and hopefully teaching you in the process. I am Adam. I'm Marcy. I'm Robin. (laughs) It's just nonstop goodness when you come to the BCD, am I right? (laughs) So far this month, we've talked about the classical animation of Don Bluth and the computer-generated animation of Blue Sky Studios. But today, we're covering one of the most interesting and possibly creepiest (laughs) animation styles out there. Motion capture. Motion capture. Motion capture. Whoa. <laughs> this was a little off the beaten path. It sure yeah. is, but yeah. it still counts. <laughs> Over the past several years, motion capture, or mocap, and performance capture have been popping up in live action and animated films. Examples include Andy Serkis' performances as Gollum in the Lord of the Rings franchise and Andy Serkis as Caesar in the Planet of the Apes franchise, or Andy Serkis as... No, you get it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But even though motion capture has proven to be a valuable tool in live-action films, the technique provides an interesting aesthetic to animated films as well. Interesting is a great word. It's a mm-hmm. great, it's kind, a, yeah. nice word. <laughs> yeah. It's a great word in this case because a lot of people do find it a little terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the 2000s, motion capture animated movies became somewhat of a fad. Several major animated productions, many of them involving Steven Spielberg or Robert Zemeckis, used the technology within 10 years. This week, each of us picked an animated movie from this era that used motion capture technology to transport the physical performances of actors into completely animated productions. So, slip on your motion capture suits and head into the studio. We've got some animated films to learn about. Honestly, I didn't even really know what this was until a couple of years ago. Right. It's... I knew I knew what it was in the sense that I knew that the Polar Express was motion capture, <laughs> and I, I oh, knew that's that, weird one. Yeah, yeah like I, I knew that it was certainly different. Yeah, but I didn't know exactly how it was done, mm-hmm. and you know that kind of stuff. So this is a really interesting process, mm-hmm. and it adds a lot to computer animation, which is you know basically all of us watch computer animation constantly. Yeah. You know, you watch an Avengers movie, full scenes are right. just CG. Yeah. yeah. It's completely generated at a computer. Right. When you look at the behind the scenes stuff, there's so much green or so much yeah. blue mm-hmm. just in the backgrounds. It's like yeah. all of that sometimes, has to be done. You yeah, know? Sometimes yeah. the actors aren't even. Right. Like sometimes the actors are CG. I want to say like, I mean, I guess I don't know, but. Uh, a vast majority of the time, Iron Man is yeah. a completely yeah. CG just, yeah. character. Yeah, he's just flying when he's flying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's... And so, yeah, you see, you know, computer animation constantly, and you see motion capture constantly, mm-hmm. too. It's You're so used to it now. We're so used to it. But seeing it in animation is a little... It can be off-putting. Right, yeah. right. So what is motion capture? Motion capture is a method of recording an actor's performance so that it can be transferred to a computer-generated character on screen. Instead of a character completely created by an animator, the final result is a collaboration between the animator slash visual effects artists and the actor playing the character. Yes. So if you'd ever imagine yourself in, like, VR, it's kind of the vibe, right? Where you're putting yourself in... The digital space. Yeah. So it's like Ready Player One, but real. <laughs> yes. yes, but you're not seeing any of the digital space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you might be familiar with the concept of motion capture, especially as it increased in popularity over the last 20 years or so. But animated films made with motion capture are rarer than live action films with motion capture elements, even though you could argue that motion capture as a technique is a form of animation. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. There's an argument. Yeah. There's certainly a live action aspect to it, but yeah. the definition essentially of animation is that it's not something that has been captured, it's something that's been created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, obviously part of it is live action because part of it is the performance of a live action mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. But adding a character on top of that, all do you know yeah. everything that you add to it is right. animation. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's so much more that goes into it after the capture part. Yeah, right. Because if you look at a lot of their screens, you see like the wireframe of a character moving along with the actor. But somebody's got to make it still yeah. look nice. Someone yeah. has to make it a person yeah. and not just you know lines and circles. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In the late 1860s, when Edward Moybridge, we haven't said hey, that name in a that, while. It has been a while. Yeah, check out our cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> in the 1860s, when Edward Moybridge lined up cameras to capture the movement of a running horse, he effectively proved that creating a moving photograph was possible. This technique to record movement was one of the earliest examples of cinematography and possibly the beginning of motion capture. Some people credit this as the the beginning of motion capture. Yeah. I think it's a bit too broad to say that it is, um, but I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, if it was... Essentially, everything shot with a camera would be considered motion capture. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Which is just too much. If you think yeah. about it, I mean, it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's like when someone says stop motion photography. Well, all photography is stop motion. Is. Right. Yeah. That's technically the whole point. You, you stopped <laughs> you stop. the thing, and now we can look at it forever yeah. in a frozen frame, you know? Right. Um, yeah, so it, it, I mean, if you de- define it that way, literally any movie is motion capture. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Although the modern definition of mocap involves CGI, some earlier forms of the technique began in the early 20th century. Around 1915, animator Max Fleischer, hey, hey we've talked you. about him before, invented rotoscoping. You can learn more about Fleischer in our History of Animation episodes. Yes, yes. yes. We talk about him then. Rotoscoping is the process of animating over live action reference footage to capture the exact movement of a subject which sounds a lot like mocap, right? I mean, yeah, yep. pretty much the same idea, but you do it by hand. Right. <laughs> Fleischer noticed that motion and animation wasn't fluid or realistic, and to solve that problem, he created a device that allowed him to animate over frames captured by a film camera. Fleischer had his brother dress in a clown costume and dance on the roof of his house in front of a white sheet. The rotoscope consisted of a film projector hooked up to a car headlamp to increase brightness. The animator would face the projector with a screen covered in tracing paper. Each image of the dancing clown appeared on the screen, ready for the animator to trace over the movement. Rotoscoping changed animation, and when the patent expired, other studios began rotoscoping too. The most famous examples came from Walt Disney. Who else? Mm, Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And you can kind of see when they start using it. If you look back at their oldest stuff, mm-hmm. you can see that. I mean, you can get away with it with just like cartoony stuff, like a Mickey Mouse short or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But as soon as you get into their feature movies, you start to see that they kind of needed to do that. Otherwise, their human characters meant to look right. as realistic as you can mm-hmm. get at this point. Yeah. You know, they would look it's uncanny. It's kind of hard to think about. So like, you know, you think about moving pictures. We know what moving pictures are, right? We have a reel of film mm-hmm. and we see each frame, mm-hmm. right? And you've got, let's say it's 24 frames per second. You could just draw out the 24 frames, but you might not do it as fluidly if you're not yeah. actually going yeah. over the reference footage because your brain can't slow things down enough no. to remember, yeah. you know, the exact, so yes, the exact <laughs> amount of movement from frame to frame. So it's it's kind of hard. Like Snow White, you have her dancing and they animate over it. It looks really nice, mm-hmm. really yeah. smooth. Yep. And Disney was like, wow, it looks so smooth. We're going to use this reference footage for the next 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Got him. If it works, it works. Exactly. If it ain't broke. In the 1950s, animator and pioneer in electric animation, Lee Harrison III, created the first motion capture suit. He put potentiometers on a suit, which captured an animated motion, recording it on a CRT monitor. As early as the 1950s. That's that's insane. Yeah. This looked no more advanced than a glowing stick figure. The technology continued to develop over the next few decades. By the 1980s, the process involved several cameras and markers on the actors, especially due to advancements in biomechanics at Simon Fraser University and MIT's development of the graphical marionette. 
This involved LED lights attached to a bodysuit. An optical motion capture system rigged with two cameras then recorded an actor's movement. I like to think that when they came up with this suit, they were like, let's make it as ridiculous as we can. <laughs> <laughs> let's make it look very let's silly. Let's make it look wacky yeah. and skin tight because yeah. the yes. actors will hate it and it'll be so funny. Yes. <laughs> the cameras were large and expensive and the process of assigning the markers was painstakingly difficult. Because of this, the development of mocap technology slowed. It wasn't until the late 1990s and early 2000s that this technique would start to appear in major film productions. That took a long time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, because we were doing this already in the film, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's just because, God, it was so expensive Yeah. and just hard. Yeah, they had to yeah. wait for the technology yeah. to, they had to catch wait. up. Yeah, they said the computers just couldn't process in time <laughs> to actually do it. Whether you hate him or hate him, Jar Jar Binks is an important piece of film history, as The Phantom Menace was the first full-length film to include a completely CGI motion capture main character. <laughs> Shortly after, mocap made its way into animated productions, including Sinbad, Beyond the Veil of Mists, from 2000. But in 2004, Robert Zemeckis turned heads when he directed one of the first films ever made using entirely performance capture, The Polar Express. Hey, I wonder if we're going to talk about <gasps> That's that. That's right. I don't know, Robin. <laughs> yes, is the answer. Yes. <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen this lovely Christmas film, here's a synopsis for you. Santa Claus does not exist. Or does he? Mm. For one doubting boy, an astonishing event occurs late on Christmas Eve night. He lies in bed, hoping to hear something like the sound of reindeer bells from Santa's sleigh. To his surprise, he instead hears a steam engine's roar and whistle outside his window. A mysterious conductor invites him on board to take an extraordinary journey to the North Pole with many other pajama-clad children. There, he receives an extraordinary gift only those who still believe in Santa can experience. Do you guys enjoy this movie? I actually do really like The Polar Express. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's the kind of movie that really puts you in the Christmas spirit, I think, yeah. in a very good way. And my sister Rachel really loves this movie a lot. Mm -hmm. And I went to see it in theaters. I did like it a lot. I do find it to be a little off-putting mm -hmm. Yeah. with some of the animation, but I don't find it off-putting enough that it's a problem. Yeah. It's a fun ride. <laughs> uh, yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, never I, let your hot chocolate cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Eat, <laughs> drink it when it's scalding hot. But if you... <laughs> <laughs> Not even a little but, bit. Just... But if you lose your ticket, it's fine. Just wait a few minutes and it'll, it'll go It'll come back. Yeah. It'll come back. Yeah. yeah. I, and I love Tom Hanks in this. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. An, ama an you, amazing job throughout. Which character do you love him as? Oh, <laughs> That's a very good question. I'm sure we'll talk about all the different ones. <laughs> That's that right. So we'll, we'll have time for that. That's right. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the book that it was based on. Just for a second. Ooh. The Polar Express was written and illustrated by Chris Van Alsberg and published in 1985. The book is now widely considered to be a classic Christmas story. It was praised for its detailed illustrations and calm, relaxing storyline. The book is set partially in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the author's hometown, and was inspired in part by Van Allsburg's memories of visiting Christmas-filled department stores as a child. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's a very calm and relaxing it's very pretty. type story. Yeah. Yes. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. book. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't have that over-the-top, like, Christmas, 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 yeah. Christmas, in your face kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> The very next year, the Polar Express was awarded with the Caldecott Medal and appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. By 1989, the book had sold a million copies and made the bestseller list four years in a row. Based on a 2007 poll, the National Education Association listed the book as one of its Teacher's Top 100 Books for Children, and it was one of the top 100 picture books of all time in a 2012 poll by School Library Journal. So now, 
Moving on to the movie. That's what you all expect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> the Polar Express was co-written and directed by Robert Zemeckis with Chris Van Allsburg, also serving as one of the executive producers. The film stars Tom Hanks, who was also one of the film's executive producers. He plays five distinct roles with Daryl Sabara, Nona Gay, Jimmy Bennett, and Eddie Deason in supporting roles. Castle Rock Entertainment produced the film as their first animated movie ever. Wow. Which is pretty Out the gate. Its visual effects and performance capture were done at Sony Pictures Imageworks with a budget of about $170 which was a record-breaking sum for an animated feature at the time. The Polar Express was the first movie ever made entirely with performance capture technology, as we mentioned before. Yeah, and this is according to the Guinness Book itself. That's right. This technological technique had been used before in movies such as Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Episode I, but never for an entire film. Yeah. Thanks to this technology, Tom Hanks was able to perform many different roles, including the hero boy, also sometimes referred to as Chris, the conductor, and the boy's father. The digital artists were able to create multiple vastly different characters in the design process, but relied on Hanks to bring them to life using exaggerated facial expressions and movements. I imagine, I always kind of wondered why he played so many characters in this movie. Mm -hmm. Because even as a kid, I knew that he did. Uh Uh, And I remember thinking just like, I I call this Tom Hanks the movie. (laughs) It (laughs) is, though. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) because it's just he's... And and now looking at it, it's kind of like, well, they found an actor who knew how to do it and how Mm -hmm. it worked, and they Mm -hmm. were kind of like... Let's just let, like, you know, use him as much as we can. <laughs> yeah. That, and he's just really, really good. Uh, so, yeah. So he can pull off five characters. Yeah. Yeah. They're also like, well, we're paying him anyway. Let's pay him That's for right. <laughs> Yeah. They had to save as much of that 170 yeah. million as they could. <laughs> it took 50 minutes every day to strategically glue 152 markers onto Hanks's face, which ensured every nuance of his expressions were recorded. Imagine having all those dots placed on you every day. Yeah. What a pain! No. They, they, you know, a lot of times actors complain about getting into their makeup or into their costumes yeah. if they're really complicated. But I feel like this would be just as annoying. Yeah. <laughs> you have to sit super still for that. Hank said, "You forget you have them on until one falls off and someone runs across the room screaming. Suddenly, your ear is hanging on the ground." <laughs> <laughs> Just watching the <laughs> watching the computer, and then all of a sudden, just some piece of the face just bleh. gone. It's just what happened. Some something broke. All the data from the performance was then sent to a computer, where the virtual actor was given a digital wardrobe and placed in a CGI set. Yes, which you'll hear is a pretty common way it's done. Right in in all of these movies. Yes. Despite these unique problems associated with mocap, Tom Hanks fondly remembers working on the Polar Express, saying in a behind-the-scenes interview that playing multiple characters felt liberating as an actor. As he acted in one half of the scene, he could add things that were odd, strange, or specific. Then, on the other side of it, he would remember individual moments that he could comment on. That's kind of cool. Ah, yeah. Neat. Yeah. He's like, only I can really do this. Yes. It's very <laughs> subtle things that only he may have noticed because he consciously did that. Yeah. Right? So it's a cool little addition there. 15 years ago, the sensors were not as strong, so the motion captured performers had to be a bit more animated themselves. Nowadays, the sensors can record the slightest movement, so these more theatrical performances are no longer necessary. That's what you see in. Avengers, yeah, Avatar, yeah. yeah, they can just kind of just just you know, do it, yeah, they can just act and they don't have to worry. However, according to Zemeckis, the hardest thing for mocap actors to do in the beginning was to avoid the temptation of making an action too broad or pushing it to the extreme. Zemeckis knew the performance he wanted, and his goal was to shoot them with as little interpretation by the animators as possible. The exception to this rule was body dynamics that often had to be animated or reanimated if there was some external force acting on the characters that was not captured on set. The most common case in this film was the addition of upper body animation to create the illusion of being on a moving train, especially when the characters are on the roof. 
So there's that little like you know going over the tracks, yeah. little bump, 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 bump. That's that's not captured in a studio because they're just sitting, right? Nothing's yeah. actually yeah. moving. So that's one thing that animators had to add in, right? Alongside probably, you know, clothes moving in a certain way. Yeah, wind pushing your yeah, hair back, yeah, all and... that kind of stuff. If you take a look at some of the behind-the-scenes footage, you will get a taste of Tom Hanks's overacting skills. It's ah. fantastic. We'll put the video in the blog. <laughs> it's so much fun yes. to watch. The most difficult part of animating was creating realistic-looking hair. You can't attach motion sensors to hair, so the artists behind the film had to illustrate and create each and every strand from scratch, then animate it to move and fall realistically. This process was extremely difficult and time-consuming, but the creators behind the Polar Express refused to neglect a single detail. It would have been really weird if the hair didn't look right. Yeah. yeah. It was you just know? like a, a Lego hair. Just like, <laughs> it didn't move at all. It just <laughs> capped it right on there. I remember when I was a kid, this movie came out, and in the newspaper there was an interview with Chris Van Allsburg, and he was talking about how for years, people had been trying to get him to make this movie, and he said no. This was the first time that he felt like the technology was actually there mm -hmm. to make it, yeah, ma make the expressions mm -hmm. to be what he thought they should be, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing <laughs> that they pulled it off, honestly. Say what you want about the uncanniness and the weirdness of it, but, yeah. Yeah. but it really is something... Pretty impressive. Yeah, it's uncanny, but it's not as uncanny as A Christmas Carol from 2009. <laughs> um, yes. So I will give it a pass. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the good it, one out yeah. of the two. Yeah, for sure. It, it's yes. watchable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. So The Polar Express was released in theaters in 2004 and grossed $286 million worldwide during its initial run and... Up to three hundred fourteen million with subsequent re-releases. Ah, so I feel like people go see this when they re-release it. Yes, mm -hmm. because now it's become a little bit more of a Christmas classic movie, mm -hmm. right? It's got that feeling of Christmas that, again, is not like overly yeah in your yeah. face style. I remember seeing the trailers for this and the excitement. Yeah, around yeah. the trailers for this, very, you know, very cool feeling. Yes. It was then later listed in the 2006 Guinness World Records as the first all-digital capture film. So take that, Sid Bad. <laughs> <laughs> On Rotten Tomatoes, the movie currently sits at 56% from critics and 63% from audiences. The general consensus among most critics being that though the movie is visually stunning overall, the animation for the human characters isn't lifelike enough, and the story is padded. I disagree and i agree i disagree <laughs> that the characters are not lifelike enough i think they're too lifelike yeah. and yes. that's the problem um yes. <laughs> you know oh like i said before i don't have a problem with this movie really mm -hmm. i think this movie's fine yeah. but i think if there is a bit of uncanniness it's because it's too close yeah right without being there <laughs> right that's the thing yeah it's so close to live action but not that's yeah. what makes us feel weird because yeah. you go one yeah. step further and it's just live action at that point exactly which they i guess they could have done but maybe not to this level that that zemeckis wanted right yeah know. i i think that they did a really good job with it and i think that it could have been worse oh for, for sure, sure. <laughs> we, oh, yeah. we've seen worse yeah yeah we have we have so I specifically mentioned most critics mm, yeah, believe yeah. that because oh, yeah. that's, that's right. Because there are some who disagree. Roger Ebert gave the film his highest rating of four stars, wow. which is awesome, saying there's a deeper, shivery tone instead of the mindless jolliness of the usual Christmas movie, and it has a haunting, magical quality. He also said, acknowledging comments by other reviewers, it's a little creepy, not creepy in an unpleasant way, but in that sneaky teasing way that lets you know eerie things could happen. A lot of children's Christmas movies are very jolly mm -hmm. and just happy and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And people want to watch that at Christmas time. They sure. want to be happy, you know, whatever. There's a, whatever, it's an audience for it. But he's like kind of at the cusp yeah. Of not believing in Santa Claus, of growing up. He's at this kind of weird stage in his life. 
and it's just kind of like a little uneasy. There's this yeah. uneasy feeling. Yeah. Right. And, and I love that about it, where until they get to the North Pole, it doesn't feel Christmassy, right? Yeah. It's yeah. cold. It's dark. The inside of the train is very light and warm and yeah. nice. But outside and like the train itself isn't like bright red. It doesn't have bells on it. It doesn't have any like Christmassy stuff to it. It's just a straight up steam engine and it's intimidating almost yeah. when it arrives because it's huge compared to this little boy, right? Yeah. If you've ever stood next to a full size <laughs> steam train, they're massive. Yeah. And it's it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of scary in that way, but not enough to like make you not right. want to get on the train, yeah. essentially. I mean, this time of your life is kind of spooky when you're a kid, you yeah. know, because you, you are starting to get older and grow up and you don't really want to. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of kids don't want to grow up and that's, you know, yeah. that's kind of that feeling. Right. And who's to say that the boy's friends at school maybe already don't believe in Santa and mm -hmm. he's kind of like mm -hmm. on the fence, you know, yeah. he doesn't want to seem uncool or anything like that. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. a there's these various things and it captures that moment yeah. in life perfectly. The film was nominated at the 77th Academy Awards in the categories for Best Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, before they were combined, and Best Original Song for Believe. The song was also nominated for a Golden Globe and won a Grammy for Best Song Written for a Motion Picture, Television, or Other Visual Media. The film was also nominated at the 3rd Visual Effects Society Awards for Outstanding Performance by an Animated Character in an Animated Motion Picture. Cool. And that makes a lot of sense because Tom Hanks is everyone. Yeah. Pretty much. Exactly. So that, I'd say that's pretty outstanding as far as animated <laughs> characters go. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty great. So this movie really had a big impact on the industry as far as motion capture goes because whether or not you like the way it looks, mm -hmm. it did pretty well and it showed the industry that it can be done. Yeah. So after this one, we start to get adventurous. Right. <laughs> this was the first one. And after this one, things got a little nuts there for that's, about 10 years or so. That's right. Like, let's do movies entirely with it. And then mm -hmm. later than that, they're like, oh, oh, okay. We'll just. They scaled it back a bit. We'll yeah. use it sparingly <laughs> in our big budget live action movies. Yeah. Though I hope we see more, another full animated mocap movie. Yeah. I, I kind of want to see what they can do with it now. I yeah. bet it would be even better now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, whether you like Avatar or whether you're into the Avengers, the stuff that's in those movies is very good. Yeah. yeah. It is very good. The tech behind it is amazing. Mm -hmm. So why not try it again? Yeah. I yeah. think it'd be kind of cool. All right. It's my turn. Oh, boy. Woo! So... I decided, when we decided to do this episode, I was like, I'm going to pick the least creepy one, and oh. yet somehow the creepiest one. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. I think you nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> thank you. I chose Monster House from 2006. All right. Oh. Yeah. This I'm... isn't frightening February. February. Exactly. <laughs> this is a straight up horror film yeah. <laughs> for kids. Here's a synopsis. Everyone remembers that house in their childhood neighborhood, the one that could scare even the bravest of children. In Mayville, that house belongs to Mr. Nebercracker, an angry old man ready to chase anyone off his lawn. One evening, just before Halloween, neighborhood kids DJ and Chowder accidentally kicked their ball onto his lawn, upsetting the old man, resulting in him having a heart attack. With Nebercracker gone, DJ, Chowder, and their new friend Jenny discover that Nebercracker's house might be more than a dilapidated empty structure. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. I saw this in theaters in 3D. I, I was going to ask. Nice. It was in 3D, wasn't it? <laughs> I saw it in 3D. Absolutely. And I'm not like a 3D movie person. I can't see it very well. It usually gives me a headache. Mm -hmm. This was the best 3D I've ever seen in my life. That's nice. massive praise. If yeah, it is. goes, yeah, if it goes back in theaters in 3D, Go see it. My sister Rita took me and Becky to see it. Oh my God. I mean, mind blowing. And this movie, it's okay. It's creepy. Yeah. I remember it's creepy, but in a delicious way. You're watching yeah. it. Delicious. Yeah. Delicious. You've, you're watching it and you feel the creepiness and you yeah. feel the scariness. And, and it, it does, it's, it's almost like you're a kid, 
but now you're allowed to be a little bit more of a grown up mm-hmm. for a little while. Yeah. You know, yeah. you feel like you're watching it and you're like, this is kind of cool. I feel like I'm watching something I'm not supposed to. Uh, and but it also isn't scary enough to keep you up all night. Yeah. Right. So right. Yeah. it reminds me of a Tim Burton kind of movie. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. yeah. It <laughs> is. It is a little bit like that. You know, the beginning, just the whole beginning of it has this very creepy feeling to it. And that feeling kind of just weaves throughout because, you know, they just launch right into this and they don't explain anything. They just kind of let you experience what's going on. And (laughs) watching the commentary when everybody's like, oh, everybody knows that house in their neighborhood that was haunted. I was like, "Ah, I don't... Uh and I thought, I and I thought, and I realized it was my house. I lived, uh, in, I li- I lived in the scary house. Yeah. If there isn't one, it's yours. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> so here's a little bit about the making of the movie. After director Gil Keenan graduated from UCLA, he began searching for the right script for his first film. During his search, he discovered a fascinating original screenplay by Dan Harmon, creator of Community and Rick and Morty. Yeah, Rob Schrab and Pamela Petler. The men had pitched the film to Image Movers, the studio founded by Robert Zemeckis, Steve Starkey, and Jack Rapke in the late 90s. Although the film was originally intended to be live action, Robert Zemeckis thought that it would be a perfect candidate for motion and performance capture. When Gil Keenan expressed interest in directing the project, he approached the story with a complete understanding of the universe, and the producers knew he was perfect for the job. Nice. He came in, he knew exactly, he came in like exactly to what it would look like. He had sketches and they said the sketches that he presented were this really sweet, tranquil suburban neighborhood that just seemed wrong. Like there was just something uh, oh. off. They said the colors were just like a little too realistic. Uh, the shadows were like a little too extreme. There was just something about it that was just not, it was like, it was a suburban neighborhood but you knew that there was something there that was <sighs> that didn't work that didn't work which with motion capture i mean that's like a perfect yeah keenan had experience with animation and even though monster house would use mocap he didn't think it made sense to design the characters in a hyper realistic way he explained that when he closed his eyes and imagined the main character dj he didn't see the actor that played him he saw a stylized animated character with a lanky body large head and big eyes I think this here is the biggest reason why you don't get that weird feeling from yes. this movie. Yes. <laughs> this is a mocap movie without the uncanny valley yes. aspect yes. of it. Because they said, we're going to have stylized characters. They're going to look like cartoon characters. Right. They're not going to look like people. Mm-hmm. He felt like, he said, he, I kind of feel like it's a waste of time, he said, to recreate the world we live in. Yeah. Why? Yeah. You know, yeah. we live in it. We see it exactly. all the time. Yeah. 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 So he, he he's was like, then just do a live action. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he felt like that was kind of a waste of time. So he was like, let's let's make something that is a little different. Yeah. Keenan brought in Chris Applehans, who used Keenan's sketches to design and illustrate the main characters. A sculptor referenced these illustrations while creating 3D models of each character. Using a laser scanner, the character designers created a digital 3D rotation of each character. Then, texture painters smoothed out any imperfections and added the skin color, freckles, and clothing details. Oh, man. If you ever wonder why there's so many names at the end of movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's- This is it. That's it. Just to make the characters that was like six people Yeah, that was a lot. That was a lot of people to do that. And when, you know, when Chris Applehans drew up these characters, these sketches, he made the characters look just, they said, slightly asymmetrical. Yeah. There's like a slight- You know, Mm -hmm. offness about them just to, you know, kind of make them so they're not too pretty, you know. Mm -hmm. Keenan and his team of animators began work by storyboarding the entire movie. Then they created an animatic, which is like a moving storyboard that just gives the animators an idea of how the movie will look. The first scene they worked on was the very first sequence in the movie. It took the editors four months to cut together a mock-up of the movie even before the actors were brought in. Once the actors performed their scenes, the director and cinematographer filmed the performances and cut together a performance cut with motion and performance capture information and the live-action footage of the actors in their mocap suits. Then came the layout phase, which was essentially the same spirit as the animatic, but with the performances shot from similar angles as a storyboard. 
there were essentially four full-length versions of the movie before the final product. Goodness gracious. Yeah, on the special features, you can watch each version of the same scene. That's really cool. Way to have some great special features. I know. Yeah, that's how it should be done. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. When the actors came in to do their takes, the makeup artists placed clear plastic masks on their faces to mark where the dots would be for performance capture. They would then put on skin-tight suits fitted with dots, and wardrobe would glue helmets onto their heads. Each actor had 80 markers on their body, with 72 markers on their face. That's still a lot. Yeah, (laughs) it is a lot. And they really would glue the helmets to their heads. And yeah, one of the actors in the movie, John Heater, said that the only thing he liked about it (laughs) was at the end when they peeled it all off Mm -hmm. and they would they would wash your hair with special shampoo to get all of the goop Uh, out of it. Yeah. He was like, but you would be at the store later and you'd just like rub your head and you'd find some like hair boogers, (laughs) he said. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, Just little globs of glue that were still stuck to your scalp. Oh, no. What a pain. (laughs) I feel like after after all the shooting is done, maybe just shave it. Oh, yeah. Just go bald once and let it grow back. Yeah. I thought he was going to say it just felt so nice. It was like a spa. They just, you know. He did say it was like a spa. Wash your hair after. I'm glad they did something. Yeah. Yeah. The small performance space had 200 motion capture cameras, which picked up only the movement of the sensor dots on each actor. The cast enjoyed working in the minimal space with very few distractions. The dots form a marker cloud that the visual effects artists connect. This creates a skeleton of the character before the skin and other details are added. After the stylized animation is added, the VFX artists make sure that the performances of the actors aren't lost, and they place the characters in a completely digital environment. That's right. Mm. Sounds familiar. Yes. Yeah. This is where the cinematographer and director would come back in and place virtual cameras in the animated environment to film the animation. So you have a virtual environment, a virtual set that has been completely created in CG. You've added in your CG characters that are mocap, and now they're placing cameras in different angles in the quote-unquote room to show those characters from different spots and what they're doing. If that makes sense, hopefully it does. Yes. They can choose any focal length in any position. Then they go to the wheel room, where they use physical wheels to control panning and tilt. For Monster House, they even used some handheld devices to control the virtual cameras. Their goal was to make the movie look like it was made by people, not computers. They were hoping for imperfection. When you use tools like that, uh, it's bound to happen. Yeah. That's what everyone in the industry is normally used to, moving these pieces around to mm-hmm. have your cameras move and that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Dolly the cameras around, that kind of stuff. So that makes sense. If you want realism in your camera movements, I mean, you got to move it like a real camera. Yes. That's yeah. period, right? Yeah. And that's so crazy to me that it's like the cinematographer still got to film a movie Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, exactly. it just was in a computer. Like, <laughs> so they just constructed the whole set, the character, everything yeah. in mm-hmm. a computer. And then he put in these fake little, I mean, digital cameras and just, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to pan to the left now. Yeah. Oh, that's the left side of the character's face. You know, it's really mm-hmm. interesting to do it that way. Yeah. I just think that's so wild. I never Jeez. thought of it like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For the soundtrack, Gil Keenan brought in Douglas Pipes a collaborator and friend to score his first full-length film. Pipes has gone on to score many more films like The Babysitter, Krampus, and Trick or Treat. He's a a horror film composer. (laughs) It seems he's found his niche. (laughs) When developing Monster House, the filmmakers treated the house as its own character. They went out looking for the scariest houses in suburban neighborhoods and created a conglomerate of the spookiest ones they saw. The house didn't just have to look scary, it had to sound scary, too. Sound designers set up microphones in a house and then tore it down. Oh. So they had them all and they put the things in and they demoed the house. They said the the cranes are right above their heads and kind of freaking out a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This helped them capture what it would sound like as the monster house ripped itself apart. Then they set up speakers in a barn and loudly played monstrous noises. The sounds shook the structure, distorting and bouncing around. They recorded this as well and mixed it with the actual screams of Kathleen Turner, the actor playing the house. 
That is super cool. That's awesome. They said a, they chose a barn specifically because the structure is loose and they knew that it would yeah, shake yeah. with the sounds. And so they set up the speakers in the barn and they played the sound and they showed footage of all the animals that were on the farm uh, when they played the music and those animals beat it. Though they got out of there. They, yeah. What's happening? <laughs> they, they heard that sound, they got out. They were so scared. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That, that, that's an amazing detail that I would have never thought to do. Yeah. I was like, okay, they got the sounds of the house yeah. crumbling perfect, nailed it. Never would have thought it's, to make that roar effect different. Too. Yeah. Sound design is really cool you know you have to figure out other things that make these sounds you know Mm -hmm. because it's like you're watching it the sounds fit so perfectly you would never even think about how they made the sounds you're just like whatever right It, it again we talked about it in the past where when you see something happen even in animation, if they're doing it right, you just kind of assume, of course, it makes that sound. I'm looking at it. I'm yeah. looking at it happen. It's right happening. Now. Yeah, and it's just making the sound being picked up by the cameras or whatever. But yeah. that's not the case. Yes. One of my favorite ones that I've ever seen is in old cartoons when characters are sneaking. It's like that. Yeah. They used like an old leather wallet, and they were just like, like bending it back and forth because it was so old. It was squeaking. It's like. Yeah. And that's like it just it does so cool, so unrelated, but yet the sound fits so perfectly. Yeah, I love that. That that's magic, really. Mm -hmm. At the start of the production, Gil Keenan made a wish list of all the actors he wanted for the movie. In a complete stroke of beginner's luck, he secured every single person he asked for. Nice. (laughs) Among the list was beloved character actor Steve Buscemi as Mister Nebercracker. Legendary comic actors Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard played DJ's parents. They work together really well, play off each other very mm-hmm. very funny. The police duo of Officer Landers and Officer Lister were played by Kevin James and Nick Cannon. Jason Lee brought Bones to life, the rotten boyfriend of Z, DJ's babysitter, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. John Heater played Skull, the arcade guru that joins the kids in their fight against the monster house. And Kathleen Turner, who played the infamous Jessica Rabbit, Brought Constance and the Monster House to life. So cool. That is cool. That's a, that's a stellar cast for yeah, such this like this kind of movie you wouldn't expect. Absolutely, it is. It is a pretty star-studded cast, actually. <laughs> I I also love how Catherine O'Hara is a parent again. Yes, again, uh, yes. again, classic. Oh, and she's so good in that role. Yeah. It is very funny. Our three main protagonists, DJ Chowder and Jenny, were played by Mitchell Musso, Sam Lerner, and Spencer Locke, respectively. Mitchell Musso went on to star in Hannah Montana. Mm, yep. Sam Lerner currently plays Jeff Schwartz on The Goldbergs. And Spencer Locke appeared in Big Time Rush, among other things. All right. Yeah. Monster House opened in July of 2006. With a budget of $75 million, it made $141,861,243 worldwide. All right. Wow. Approximately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take a few cents. <laughs> <laughs> Domestically, it didn't make back its budget. Roger Ebert called Monster House one of the most original and exciting animated movies he had seen in a long time, giving it his highest rating of four stars. All right. Yeah, Roger you, Ebert is into it. Yeah, and you know what's so funny is that I watched the review of Monster House, and he was talking about it. He was like, so the Polar Express, probably one of my favorite animated movies ah. of all time. Wow. He said that. Whoa. He was like, and this movie, they use the same the there, same yeah. uh, process of motion capture. Aww. So that was pretty funny. That's so he said awesome. that. Yeah, he was like, one of my favorite animated movies ever made is the Polar Express. So yeah. he really did like that movie a That's lot. super cool. Yeah. <laughs> Monster House was nominated for an Oscar for Best Animated Feature, but lost to Happy Feet. It was nominated for several Annie Awards and three Saturn Awards. Overall, it received generally favorable reviews and has a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, unlike Polar some other stop or mocap yeah. movies like the Polar Express. Uh, dang it. <laughs> Monster House was the first completely original mocap animated film, as it was not based on any earlier material. It was scary and strange, but in the same way that horror has always appealed to offbeat audiences. Even though it is considered a horror film, I don't find it really scary. I yeah. like it a lot. Yeah. 
I watch it and I can feel I, I I still feel what I felt as a kid watching yeah. it. Yeah. And I see why it's scary, quote mm-hmm. unquote scary. Mm-hmm. But it's not scary enough to keep like to keep me from watching it. Yeah. It's really it it just like I said, it kind of made you feel cool. Mm-hmm. You know, you felt like you were being treated like a grown-up watching yeah. it. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it really did kind of venture into that scariness, the beginning with the little girl. You know, yeah. and just the creepiness of her being stuck on the lawn, and right, you know, it doesn't pull any punches, and it goes down some of those horror movie trope yeah. roads. Yeah. You know, it 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 really plays itself like yeah. a horror movie, but it doesn't it doesn't have any crazy <laughs> yeah. gore right. or anything it doesn't like take that. It too you know? far, yeah, yeah. You know, you have the character Bones, who is just this absolute jerk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's the first to get, you know, eaten, quote unquote, eaten by mm-hmm. the house. It's They did it that way because I mean, almost every scary movie does that. You have a character yeah. that you build up that you hate. Yeah. You know, when that person does get got, you're not that upset about yeah. it. Right. You're like, yeah, okay. All right, you guys ready for my pick? Sure. Oh, Last sure. pick of the night. Boy. All right, for my pick, I picked The Adventures of Tintin. Yeah. Yeah. Also known as The Secret of the Unicorn. So if you guys haven't seen this movie or don't know what this movie is about, here's a little synopsis. Young journalist Tintin, with his dog Snowy, finds an old model ship at a flea market. Tintin notices that it is a model of the famous ship known as the Unicorn. After purchasing it, two different people approach him about buying it from him. He says it is not for sale and heads home. Unbeknownst to him, it contains a secret message that is one of three messages that lead to a treasure. In taking the model, he becomes entwined in the mystery and adventure, leading him to find Captain Haddock, who will be the only one to uncover the truth. Yeah. All right. Sounds really interesting. This is a good one, for sure. So Tintin, of course, was not really original. This is an original story. It's Mm -hmm. uh, actually... He actually made his first appearance with Snowy in 1929 by the Belgian cartoonist Erge, or known by his real name, Georges Rami. It was first featured in Le Petit Vintiame, where Erge had been commissioned to design, supervise, and illustrate. In French, Tintin is pronounced more like Tintin. Ah, Just a little fact there. Tent instead of tint. Yeah, yeah. got it. <laughs> The compilations are known as albums, and there are a total of 24. Since the comics, there have been five films made, one stop motion, and two in both live action and animation. There have also been some radio dramas and two different animated shows. Oh my gosh, a stop wow. motion? Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Gonna have to research into yeah. that one. <laughs> you know, it makes sense because when this movie came out and when it was being mm-hmm. advertised, it's you know it was kind of like oh check this out this big new movie yeah. but I even I had heard Tintin before yeah the ah. Adventures of Tintin we knew it was something yeah it's <laughs> like where have I heard that before it yeah. must be popular I didn't <laughs> I knew I knew it was it. something but I didn't know like what it what? was yeah. yeah 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 until around the 1980s Tintin was pretty much only known amongst the European countries in which it was shared as a pop culture icon. At that time, Indiana Jones came out and was quite a hit. Steven Spielberg, who had been the director, was shown French reviews of The Lost Ark, and he couldn't read most of it, but he could pick out his name and a few other words. However, he kept seeing the word Tintin throughout the reviews. He asked his assistant to have them translated, and that is when he saw that it referenced Tintin by Erge. He promptly got the books and began to read. Oh, yeah. oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Erge was actually a fan of Spielberg's. Aww. Which is perfect. So cute. They had a telephone call in 1983, and they had scheduled to meet up in two weeks. Unfortunately, Erge passed away before the meetup. His wife decided to release the rights to Spielberg anyway. A lot happened after that, though, before the movie was finally able to actually be made. When it was finally made, Spielberg put a nice little cameo of Erge in the beginning, where he paints Tintin as he looks in the comics. 
Very nearly there, sir. I have to say, your face is familiar. Have I drawn you before? Occasionally. Of course, I have seen you in the newspaper. You are a reporter? I'm a journalist. So sweet. Oh, man, that's kind of sad, <laughs> yeah. but also really nice that he did that. I wonder if Ergay would have liked this movie. Probably. You know, I, I like I've to read think so. some reviews where they, they thought he would. There's a Tintinologist who, oh. who believed he would. Nice. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, this goes deep. <laughs> this 2011 adaptation truly had a talented team behind it, especially with John Williams, who did the score. All right. Yeah. It got nominated for an Oscar. The score yeah, did. it did. The writers that worked on the screenplays were Edgar Wright, who did Shaun of the Dead, Stephen Moffat, who did Doctor Who, and Joe Cornish, who did Attack the Block. That's some pretty big, that's some pretty big names. Yeah. yeah. All three of these guys were familiar with Tintin, and some of them were pretty big fans. As I began watching the 1991 animated show, it's clear that they took a lot of inspiration. These were also based on the three original books, the Crab with the Golden Claws from 1941, The Secret of the Unicorn from 1943, and Red Rackham's Treasure from 1944. And Spielberg immediately knew he wanted the man behind the Lord of the Rings to do his special effects. Oh, snap. <laughs> Everything that he's done has been such a great translation of material. Yeah, right? really, it has. So, yeah. so if you want it to feel right, yeah. then... Originally, Spielberg had wanted to film it live action, but it would have been greatly stylized to be similar to Ergay's original drawings. This decision was forgone because of the number of prosthetics and makeup it would have taken. Oh, man, what an interesting yeah. movie that would have been, though. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Snowy, even during the thoughts of live action, was always going to be CGI. This is where Peter Jackson comes in. Spielberg asked him to do a screen test for the pup. <laughs> Jackson, having been a Tintin fan since childhood, took the chance to join Snowy on the screen as a live-action Captain Haddock. He was even able to use the ship from King Kong on the test. That test was so good. It's so <laughs> it was, good. It was Love so it. cute. So yeah. So he really jump in the water? Yeah, I, That's well, what I, I thought. think so. Okay. Oh, man. From what I could tell. Go check out the blog for that. Yes. <laughs> When talking about his final decision to choose motion capture, Spielberg said, It was based on my respect for the art of Ergay and wanting to get as close to that art as I could. Ergay wrote about fictional people in a real world, not in a fantasy universe. It was the real universe he was working with, and he used National Geographic to research his adventure stories. It just seemed that live action would be too stylized for an audience to relate to. You'd have to have costumes that are a little outrageous when you see actors wearing them. The costumes seem to fit better when the medium chosen is a digital one. Okay. Yeah, I could see what he's saying. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think that he probably saw all the other versions because there are some live action mm -hmm. versions. There are some animated versions. And I think he wanted to try something new and different that, that could possibly just honor Ergay in a different way. Yeah. To help them prepare for a motion capture film, Spielberg and Jackson were invited by James Cameron to Ooh. see the process that was used to create the hit movie Avatar. Aw. Yeah. He's sharing nice. secrets. That's yeah. nice. <laughs> this gave Spielberg the chance to play around with the technology and see what it was like to control the camera's view with what looked like a humongous game controller. Yeah. Oh, cool. I imagine something similar to the controllers they used for Monster House. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Were, yeah. Absolutely. This technology was then improved in time for Tintin and allowed Spielberg to control the camera and direct the shots during the actor's performances. He could be right next to the actors, directing them, and the camera would not see him because he did not have the mocap suit on. Oh, nice. That's, That's cool. cool. What a hack. He could just know, be invisible. Right? Yeah. He was even able to watch a monitor that gave a loose creation of the animation. That wow. is super cool. You see the difference <laughs> yeah. from the first one they mm -hmm. did to... Because they could absolutely could not do that for either mm -hmm. of these other uh, productions that me and Adam talked about. Yeah. Right. It's 
<laughs> so yeah. cool. Imagine just walking in on set. It, like, you know, yeah. how many movies did Steven Spielberg direct, right? Yeah. You can't just walk out on set while they're still shooting. Yeah, but exactly. But you, you can in this because you're yep. invisible. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. With all this technology, all the locations had to be built digitally first. So the actors could move within each of the spaces. Moving within these spaces also made it easier to have incredible scene transitions. One example is when Tintin is rowing the boat, the camera spans out, and the boat is shown in a puddle where a character in the next scene then steps through it. Yeah. (laughs) These are so creative. Yeah. And something that can only be done in this medium yeah and i love that it's it's really a fun movie like they do lots of little fun things like that showing off the art and the skill yeah it's really cool so this movie is jam-packed with talent from andy circus a mocap pro yeah obviously (laughs) mr mocap as they call him (laughs) (laughs) to daniel craig jamie bell simon pegg Nick Frost, and even an appearance of Carrie Elwes. Nice! (laughs) The film was created with motion capture so that the characters could look as similar to Ergay's vision as possible, but also bring it into a more real space. We get to see them as 3D versions that keep a little bit of a cartoonish style. Yeah, like the detectives, for example. Yes, exactly. I I think especially of when one of them kind of hits a lamppost and then like falls back. Mm -hmm. It's way more animated than an actual person hitting a light post. Yeah, it's a bit of a blue sky mentality, right? (laughs) Trying to emulate Mm -hmm. the original style similar to Peanuts. Yes, with like bigger noses and things like that. Maybe Mm -hmm. not quite as far as Peanuts, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's nice that it's there. Yeah. It even helps when little details are shown, like birds swirling around the pickpocket's head after he crashes into someone else. (laughs) The birds are then shown to be real because a shop owner comes out with a net to collect them. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. At first glance, this movie looks like live action. Even my brother, who came into the room, thought so at first. Hey. But with this comes opinions like what Kyle Buchanan in a Vulture article said. He said, Aside from the swoop in the front of his hair that lends him some cartoonish verve, Tintin looks simultaneously too human and not human at all. His face weirdly fetal, his eyes glassy and vacant instead of bursting with animated life. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, a lot of a them harsh. said yeah, that the, the most human-looking one was Tintin. Yeah. They humanized him probably more than, than most of the other mm-hmm. characters. Yeah, there were a lot of characters that had big noses, mm-hmm. really sharp jaws. Yeah. You know, just things that were a little different. Yeah, a little more cartoony. Yeah, <laughs> and then he just kind of just looks like a guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, I think that the film does not go too far into the uncanny valley. Very few times was I taken out of the film by how a character looked. Roger Ebert, who gave it three and a half stars. It's only a half star worse than the I know, right? (laughs) Even said, Tintin looked human, if extremely streamlined. His face, as described by an eyewitness to a police artist, would produce a sketch of Tintin. The other characters are permitted more detail. Thompson and Thompson, in particular, are given noses that would make W.C. Fields weep with envy. (laughs) (laughs) Also, what other film could bring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost together as practically identical-looking characters, Inspectors Thompson and Thompson? That in itself is a joy. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. It is. It's really cute. <laughs> listening and watching and listening, I was like trying to figure out which one was which. <laughs> Me too, yeah. but yeah, I, I couldn't like, figure oh. it out. I eventually got there. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I was able to pick out Simon Pegg's voice. Nick mm-hmm. Frost changed his voice for it. I was for thinking sure. so. Yeah. yeah. Was it? Uh, was he Thompson or uh, Thompson? He was Thompson. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. got it. Ah, yeah. uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be mentioned that although Snowy has talking bubbles in the comics, he luckily does not talk in the film. Oh, yes. He is very much just like a a pet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A smart pet. Very smart and brave. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A hero, really. Uh, Yeah. There are a lot of differing opinions on this movie. There seem to be several diehard European fans of Tintin 
that believe this movie does not pay proper tribute to the legacy that Ergay built and question the Hollywood look of motion capture. Others that grew up with the comics and the movies and TV shows thought that it was a fun film that brought out all the best parts of the stories. Still others think that it falls into the uncanny valley. In theaters, though, it did well. With an estimated budget of $135 million, it grossed almost $374 million worldwide. Yeah. Nice job. Did good. The movie had a lot of people working on it that had new and old love for the original content. I think that no matter your thoughts on the movie, it brought knowledge of Tintin to more people to enjoy. Absolutely did. Yeah. I don't think it's that uncanny. I, I think that's a little... I yeah. I don't know. I I understand where that criticism comes from, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's... I, honestly, I really don't think it's too uncanny. It doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. I don't... I can see that, like, Tintin himself could be probably the most uncanny Mm -hmm. of all the characters in the movie. But, like, Captain Haddock is adorable. Oh, yes. I mean, just so cute. I think he's, I think they said he's a fan favorite just in general. Yeah. Of the original content and the new. Yeah, and I think the backgrounds are absolutely beautiful. The colors look really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it was being advertised, I see commercials for it on TV, things like that. It always, from the beginning, felt like this really big budget, over the top mm-hmm. animated movie. Like, yeah, it, it was yeah. like this is the Adventures of Tintin. It is like we're going super hard on this <laughs> yeah. one. You know what yeah. I mean? From the beginning, yeah. it just had, like you said, the beautiful backgrounds. Yeah, gorgeous, am- amazing set pieces, amazing action for yeah. a movie like this. You know, and. Just so much creativity squeezed into this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I think it looks very, very close to live action. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good story. It's an interesting yeah. story. Uh, you don't need to know who Tintin is to enjoy it. No. And I really love adventure stories. I love treasure and all of that yes, stuff. Yeah. So it is kind of fun to watch for sure. Yeah. And there's lots of extended action scenes. Like, the, you know, there's one where they're on a boat and they're yes. trying to get off this boat for a long time. There's a lot of, <laughs> this is a long scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're getting, you know, but, you know, it's, you got to fit in your animation. You got to fit in, yeah. yeah, show everybody what you can do. Yeah. that I mean, that what that's what makes it feel so big budget Hollywood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, some people may not like it. Some people do, yeah. but it is what it is. And yeah. I think it did a great job. Yeah, yeah, really. It is It is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. It's streaming on HBO Max right now. Yes. Sweet. I don't yes. know where else it's streaming, but it it is very good, mm-hmm. and I do suggest you check it out. Yeah. And for those Tintin purists, uh, I will say that throughout the entire process, Spielberg and Peter Jackson, they communicated clearly with Fanny uh, Rodswell, his Aww. his uh, wife, and so they got okays through her every single time. Like That's a, so a nice. character did not get approved without her say so, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah. So they they tried to really honor they did the what best he they yes, yeah. without him being there as they had wanted. Mm-hmm. Motion capture is still a heavily used method in Hollywood even though the practice of mocap and full-length animation has fallen to the wayside. Yeah, it sure has. Yeah, you don't really see this much anymore. Pretty much no. gone. Films like The Polar Express, Monster House, and The Adventures of Tintin presented interesting and exciting stories in a unique style that captured the imagination of audiences, or maybe creeped them out a little. Although 3D computer animation seems to be the most favored style today, Movies that implement different techniques tend to stand out. Who knows? As technology improves, maybe motion capture will move back into theaters again soon. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! I hope so. Yeah. I want to see all different kinds of animation. I want to see Absolutely. all d- different techniques and methods. And I honestly, I do like mocap. Mm-hmm. I do like yeah. the con- especially, you know, you doing a stylized thing, I think is pretty cool. You know, and I feel like Tintin was at least partially stylized. You know? Yeah. Oh, for yep. sure. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because you you have a method like mocap, and you look at these three separate movies, and you can see how each one still had its own style. 
and no- mm-hmm. none of them looked like the other movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though they were all basically made by the same people. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel like Robert Zemeckis is involved in like everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or Steven Spielberg. It's like yep, one of those, one of those guys. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, mocap's interesting. I'm interested to hear what other people think about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, this is a PSA from the Black Case Diaries <laughs> telling everyone that when animated movies come out that are different, mm-hmm. you should go see them. Yeah, yeah. Give them a chance. Please. Mm-hmm. You are 100% allowed to like the normal style, the Disney There's usual stuff. There's absolutely nothing wrong with Disney animation. Encanto yep. was great. Yeah. Will not deny it. Yeah. Art styles are so worth checking out. You won't regret mm-hmm. it, we promise. Yeah. Anyways, that is going to do it for this episode. That's going to be a case closed. Woo. All right. All right. Back on form. <laughs> <laughs> but before we go, we'd like to thank our patrons, of course. Joel, John, Jacob, Jacqueline, JD, Anthony, Shelly, Linda, Bob, and Jaren. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you, you. guys. Yeah. Thank you, you so really, much. You really keep our little boat afloat. So <laughs> That's right. But don't step in the puddle that we're rowing in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can now buy us a popcorn at buymeacoffee.com slash blackcasediary if you're feeling up to it. And thank you to all that support us, whether it be through listening, telling a friend, or donating. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. you can leave us a review if you feel like it. Yeah. We would appreciate that. Yeah, if you're feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And go check out BlackCaseDiaries.com, where you can go to the blog to see all the little extra things that we add in there. Yeah. This one's going to have some extras, I think. Oh, yeah. Yes, it will. Direct links to videos and all kinds Mm -hmm. of cool stuff. Yes. So thank you again. We will see you next time. See you. Goodbye. Go on, Tintin. Take my wallet. There's industrial strength elastic. Very uh, resourceful. On the contrary, it was childishly simple. Simply childish, I agree. Tintin? Tintin? Gentlemen?